I have an alarm clock beside my bed that at the appointed hour goes beep, beep, beep. And if I don't do something in 30 seconds, it goes beep, 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 beep. And if I don't do something in 30 more seconds, it goes beep, 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 beep. Do you understand the concept of escalation? Um, if you're in the Department of Homeland Security and you're assessing terrorist threats, uh, there used to be colors associated with that. We're at, we're at yellow today, but we got some threat and now we're at orange and, and if the threat is high, we're at red. There's an escalation process. Can you imagine that we started in Hebrews 1 and by chapter 2 we had some warnings and we waved the red flag whenever there were warnings, but now we're in verse, now we're in chapter 12 and we've escalated. And so when I wave the warning flag today, it's not the same as when I waved the warning flag back in the early chapters of the book. Okay, things are getting more serious. We're at a culmination of a sermon, not my sermon, the author's sermon, and the things he has to say today are of the utmost importance. So when you see this red flag now, you should be thinking, beep, 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 do you understand? It's red, it's not yellow, it's not orange, it's red. What are the warnings we're gonna hear? Among them, we're in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14, are don't fall short of the grace of God. Don't allow a bitter root to spring up. Avoid sexual immorality. Don't live like a godless person. This is Hebrews 12, 14, the reading. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even an animal touches the mountain. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Wow, strong words. You can hear the escalation in it, can't you? This is serious stuff our author is describing. And he begins with giving us some just basic advices that are very a high level of importance. The first thing he says is, see that no bitter root springs up to defile many. No bitter root. If you look up bitter root, did you know there's a plant that's actually bitter root? Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting plant, and I don't know, I've tried to research this this week and haven't really found the connection. If what the author is calling bitter root is a generic term or if it actually applies to the plant bitter root. It may just be a coincidence that it's the same name. I don't know for sure. But I was reading about the properties of bitter root. And one of the interesting properties that seems to fit this passage is bitter root has this amazing property that you can dig it up and dry it out completely so it looks like a dead plant and months later, put it back in water and soil and it will just come back to life? And we don't know of many plants that do that kind of a thing. I mean, once they've been laying out in the sun for a few days, you know, put them in the compost pile. It's done for them. But apparently not bitter root. And, And I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking, isn't that just sort of how forgiveness and unforgiveness works in our lives? Sometimes we, we, we say, I forgive you, or I'm not going to hold this grudge, and, and, and we move along like that way for a period of days or weeks or months, and, then, and something happens, and it triggers the remembrance of what has happened before, and that whole bitter root just springs right back into life. And, and do you see what the author's saying about bitter root? It defiles many. One of our tendencies as humans, I think, is that when we have a grievance, we gather support for our grievance. Do you ever notice that? If we think we've been done wrong, the first thing we do is find a friend to confirm for us that we have indeed been done wrong. And then we start to sort of cycle the the wagons and figure out how many people will agree with us that we've been done wrong. And in the process, we get to share our bitterness with everyone. And the author is describing perfectly that scenario where a bitter root grows up and defiles everybody in our circle because we allow this unforgiveness or this injustice or this problem to infect us and ruin all those around us with the bitterness that comes from whatever it was. And the problem is it may be that it was an injustice. It may be that we were wrong. And so we feel perfectly justified 
at being righteously indignant and angry about what happened to us. And in the process of the expression of our righteous indignation, we pollute the whole landscape because we're indulging the bitter root that is in us. And somehow, we've got to figure out a way to, by the grace of God, eradicate the bitter root. It has to go, or it will defile many. I remember a gentleman who got angry at me once because I was helping him too much. I didn't understand the equation, how that worked. I was diligently working to assist him. But somehow, he was convinced that I was not assisting him. And then he began to tell his friends that I was not assisting him. And before long, his friends left the church and disappeared. Not because they were angry or even involved in the situation at all, but because this one individual made a decision and allowed the ensuing bitterness to spread through his family and other families. And I thought, how tragic that we as Christians can't figure out simple equations like that. I mean, are we so easily duped into bitterness that we're allowing our tongue to poison those who are around? It's a serious, serious warning. The root of the bitter root plant tastes bitter if you accidentally gather it with other roots and throw it in the soup, the whole soup is trashed. You don't want bitterness in you. Second warning he is, he uh, asserts is avoid sexual immorality. The sexually immoral have a tendency to create brokenness in relationships. Part of, the, part of the goal of, of sexual um, interplay is to cement appropriate relationships together. Sexual intimacy is a part of the God-given bond that brings relationships together and helps to cement them. But when we pursue relationships of a sexual nature outside of that kind of a relationship, what we set up is brokenness in ourselves and others. Sexual relationships that are not permanent cause injury and brokenness and awkwardness. It hasn't been too long ago that a friend of mine uh, corresponded with me. He was a guy who was in my youth group when I was a younger pastor. He had been dating a girl from high school for a while and they had dated long enough that they were considering uh, advancing, we'll say, their intimate relationship. But about that time, they started coming to youth group, heard some different messages, and decided, you know, we should wait. We, sh we should wait. And then graduated from high school, came. They went to different colleges. They didn't end up marrying each other. They eventually married other people. And then they had to come back for the high school reunion at the 10-year mark. And when they came back and saw each other, both were really grateful they had waited. Because you know how awkward it is to be in the room when there's all these pieces of brokenness lying around? And there's something, there's something significant 
about protecting the intimacy in our life so that we avoid the kind of brokenness that is avoidable. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying avoid sexual intimacy. He's saying avoid immorality, that intimacy that's not within the bonds of committed relationships. Um, And we want to avoid that brokenness, that awkwardness, so that we can be at ease, comfortable with the people that we're likely to run into. It becomes especially difficult in the church when you have those kinds of broken relationships lying around the congregation because future spouses are always suspicious of what might have happened before our relationship got together. And so, avoid sexual immorality. He's he's clear. Next thing he says is, don't live godless lives. I think living a godless life is the same thing as being completely self-centered. The godless think they owe allegiance to no one. And so they live for themselves. Esau, the example given, just pursued his own needs at a particular time and ignored the consequences that were going to come later. The consequences of godless behavior, um, behavior that is warped in its inability to understand that there are consequences for my decisions for others, uh, is that we are always at odds with everyone else in the society who thinks they're the center of the universe. I mean, you figure out how that works, right? If I think I'm the center of the universe, but I have to contend with six billion other people who all think they're the center of the universe, we don't ever get anywhere together. But when I begin to understand that there's someone to whom I owe allegiance, there's a story bigger than just my own life, then we can work together towards a particular goal. And and the godless have difficulty understanding that they're not in the center of the universe. These are some of the particular uh, advices that, that were given. I think to help us say no to these temptations, to put these things in their place, the author raises a comparison now. He says, you really need to open your eyes to the reality of the arena in which you're living. You need to get a true picture of your reality. The scale of the thing to which you belong and to which the whole world belongs matters. You know, I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, and we have some mountains in eastern Pennsylvania. We have the Pocono Mountains, we have, well, we have some mountains in eastern Pennsylvania, maybe a little more in the west than we do in the east, but back when Nancy and I were of an age to go to Nazarene Youth Congress, that particular year they held the youth conference in Switzerland. And so Nancy traveled to Switzerland, and took a train ride up into the Alps where the retreat center was located for this Nazarene Youth Congress. And her testimony, having seen the mountains of Pennsylvania and some of the mountains of the Adirondacks was, you know, all we really have are hills. 
we, we don't have mountains in our part of the country. Maybe if, had she seen the Rockies, maybe her thoughts would be different, but you know, we, we only have hills because the scale between what we knew compared to what she saw just changed all the categories for her. And what the author's doing here, especially beginning in verse 18, is comparing the Old Testament reality with the revealed New Testament reality. In the Old Testament parameters, you had Jehovah of the mountain, this mountain, this God who had a holy mountain, you couldn't touch it. Um, He says, think of the trumpet blast of God and you should be thinking Jericho in your mind. You know, the trumpet was sounded and the walls of Jericho fell down. So there were, there were some amazing things that happened in the Old Testament. There was fire, there were was, there was some amazing things. What the author is saying, as, as amazing as those things were, they weren't much. They, they, weren't, they weren't all of that. You know, yeah, God was awesome, but, but he was sort of seen as a regional deity not the God of the cosmos. I mean, even in Israel's mind, I think to some level, he's, he's our God. He's not the God of the Philistines. He's not the God of the Amalekites. He's, he, he's our God. And, and the regional people would, uh, from time to time, respect the God of Israel because of the amazing things they saw happen. But, but there was a, a difference. Not that God was any difference that different then, but the revelation of him was on a different scale. And once we get past Hebrews 1 and we begin to understand the actual reality in which we live, everything is different. Now we know who Jesus is. Now we know he is creator. He's the one who holds the cosmos together. He's the first and the last. We have all that language from the beginning of chapter 1 to help us know, well, it's sort of like we stepped out of a dungeon in which we had lived all our lives and found ourselves on the summit of Mount Everest. All we knew was this tiny little space all our lives, and now our eyes are open and we see the whole creation unfolded in front of us. There's a great scene in one of the Lord of the Rings movies where the hobbits and all those guys are going through these mountain passes and it's been a little bit of a treacherous journey, and finally they go around this corner, and you just expect to see more mountainous passes, but it opens up on a sign of Rivendell, which is Rivendell, which is the elf's kingdom, and it's glorious, and it's huge, and it's graceful, and it's beautiful, and these little hobbits, who've only ever lived in holes in the ground, for the first time, step around and see true, expansive beauty. And, and they're taken away. Their breath is gone. They can't believe what they're seeing. They can't believe they lived in such a small world for so long. But finally, they see the possibilities and the reality of the world around us. What does the author say? We live in the city of the living God. Notice the immensity in mind. We live among ranks of angels, the communion of saints, a holy God. There is nothing compared to this. So if you get a right picture of where we live now, because we already live in this kingdom of heaven, 
You and I who are the saints of God are already in this very kingdom. If you get an exciting view of the grandeur of all that is around us, well, once you get all that in your head, then you can hear the warning. It's not until you see the, the reality and the immensity of this unshakable kingdom that you understand the reality of the warning. What does it say in verse 25? Don't refuse him who speaks from heaven. Don't do that. The one who is the author of this indescribable thing is speaking to us. He says, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, think eternal, immense by comparison, be thankful and worship acceptably with reverence and awe. Make every peace, every effort to live in peace and to be holy. That's the advice. It's linked to a warning, but that's the advice. Make every effort to live at peace. We're told, we're told, we're told elsewhere in scripture to live at peace as much as it lies within us. So we do the work of peacemaking. I don't know if, if you've had little boys around, but you know they have a gift for like annoying one another, especially if they're within reach of one another in the back seat of the car. Maybe girls do the same thing, but I have no experience with that. I just know little boys, and, and I just remember hearing the level of sickness. Mom, Dad, he's touching me. He's bothering me. He's... That's exactly the opposite of what's in view here. The work we're called to do is the work of peacemaking. And for all of you who like to annoy and get a rise out of other people, stop it. Okay? We're not to provoke one another to anything except good deeds. Right? The rest of it, we're peacemaking because goodness knows there's enough in this society to keep us fighting and warring with one another. We don't need another half second of that stuff. But we must take up the work of peacemaking, of knitting fences, mending walls, doing the things that bring us together, not the things that divide us. And, and be holy, he says. Holiness is simple to understand, harder to live. For all of our attempts to come up with an acceptable definition of holiness, this one is good enough. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself and your own family. Love God means obey God and do what he says. Loving neighbor means doing what's best for them. It's emotion in action. It is love in action. It is kindness, it is compassion. It is the revealed lifestyle of Jesus. That's holiness. That's a good enough definition. Don't sweat the theological stuff. Observe what you know. Do those things. And you say, well, you know, is it, is it all that important? Well, yeah. If I were younger, I'd grab that red flag and start waving it as hard as I could because 
what's the next phrase? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's frightening. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you describe holiness as perfection, heaven will be empty. If you make holiness to be active love, lived out in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, in submission to God, well, we can manage to do that by his grace. We can. Some of us wrestle with submission to God. We think the moral code of loving others you know, so we don't lie or cheat or steal, that kind of stuff. We think the moral code doesn't apply to us or it is old fashioned so we can simply ignore it. But what holiness requires is submission to God. Some of us wrestle with cooperation, cooperating with the Holy Spirit. We have the Frank Sinatra view of life, I did it my way, or we're so fiercely independent, we're, we're such rugged individuals, we are so autonomous that we don't want to take advice from anyone. But the Holy Spirit is God, and to submit to God is to cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit and do what he says. Some of us are just too selfish to really love our neighbor or anyone we're not directly related to. Unless we get help in this area, unless we allow the Holy Spirit to help us love, to, to put his love in our hearts, well, if our own love is inadequate for the task of loving our neighbors, we'll need help. And if we don't get that help, red flag waving, we won't see God, now or ever. Do you understand why I so often say that simple conversion and the definition we use for it is so often inadequate to express what the fullness of a Christian life really is? It is not enough for us who live past the moment of saying Jesus is Lord to think that that sums it up. It is love in action, submitting to the Father. It is, it is this holy lifestyle of pursuing the good of others, rooting out the bitter root, avoiding sins that injure us and others. Refusing to be godless and thinking that we're the center of the universe. And acknowledging that we've been invited into this unshakable kingdom that is bigger than we can ask about, imagine, ever understand until we see it fully before our eyes. We have a taste of it now, but it will be fully revealed to us. And we're invited to step into this kingdom together, to live in this kingdom together, to live peacefully in this kingdom together, to live compassionately in this kingdom together. Love lived out in cooperation with and in submission to the Holy Spirit is an excellent definition of salvation. 
That's what it means to be saved. Can I, can I be really candid? I'm tired of talking about what I'm saved from, and I want to talk about what I'm saved to. And what I'm saved to is the unshakable kingdom of God and ranks upon ranks of angels and the entire display of the communion of saints and a holy God who rules everything with justice and mercy and compassion who has given his son Jesus to just make sure we know how very much he loves us. This is the kingdom of love. That's what, we, that's what we're born into. That's what we're saved too. That's the reality that should be reflected in our lives day after day. Not judgment, not anger, not fear, compassion. An invitation, an openness so that whosoever will join us in the venture can join us. It's my prayer that you will hear the warning that you will not Ignore the one who speaks to you from heaven. That you will hear his voice. That you will pursue peace and holiness. And that you will have an increasing view of what our reality is in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Open our eyes to see the reality of the kingdom into which we've been born. Give us your grace to live lives that are holy, that reflect your love to those who are around us. Breathe your spirit into our lives so that we will not be godless or divisive, so that we will not assume that our truth is the only truth that exists in the universe but enable us to embrace the reality of your kingdom and respond to your love. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I've had the privilege to visit some other mountains besides the mountains in Pennsylvania. The Andes Mountains are a little larger. And there is a an exhilaration that rises up when you see those kinds of things. And it is my prayer this morning, as your view of what the kingdom of God is expands and expands, you will know that same exhilaration. The exhilaration that comes from finding yourselves in the company of angels and in the communion of saints and in the presence of a holy and amazing God who loves you more than you can know. May the love of God for you fill you with joy. And may you live holy lives to his glory all the days of your life. Amen.